what I'm about to say. Hey. I thought you were starting. Oh. <laughs> hey, this is Shelby. And this is Courtney. And thanks for joining us today on All Things Macabre. Here on All Things Macabre, we discuss all the things under the topic of odd, weird, true crime, supernatural, and fiction. This podcast contains language and content that is not suitable for all listeners, so listener discretion is advised. If you find a topic we are discussing interesting, we encourage you to do some research on your own. You never know what you may learn. We are just a couple of old friends telling each other stories that we find interesting. And hoping that you'll enjoy and laugh along with us. Through some stories that are weird, true, or fictional that will just make you say, what the fuck? And now, for the fun part. Hey, Macabre Mob, it's Shelby. And Courtney. And we are back for the fourth and final part of our special for Black History. Is this really going to be the fourth and final, though? <sighs> I doubt it. <laughs> I- I'm sure... The fourth even- and a half. Four and fourth a half. and a half. <laughs> even if we don't have another part right after this, we are probably going to do it next year. Okay. There's a lot more to say still, even after this episode. Okay, so for but for this time and say you know time period or whatever, it's fourth and final. Fourth and final. Okay, we'll see. So something I've been thinking about. You said on the last episode, a lot of people seem to think that Millam and Bryant got off on killing Emmett because of all the hype surrounding the case, the involvement of the NAACP, and you said that you know they were just going to get off anyway. Yeah, regardless if they, you know, if they had admitted that they did kill him, I still think that they still would have got off scot-free with no, you know, kind of like they did anyway. Yeah, it basically showed, again, that whites could and would commit crimes without consequence to black people. So, when there was another case that arose just three months later on December 3rd, 1955, everyone actually tried to kind of stay out of it so the court wouldn't be swayed one way or another. So the NAACP didn't get involved into it. There wasn't a bunch of hype around it or anything like that. That's why a lot of people actually don't know about this case. Okay. Keep in mind, a lot of people are saying the Emmett's case was swayed because of the NAACP's involvement. I disagree on that, but okay. I do too. But, on the afternoon of December 3rd, 1955, Elmer Kimball, a close friend of J.W. Millam, He was actually recently found to have accompanied Millam the night that Emmett was abducted due to an ongoing FBI investigation that was going on. But anyways, that night he had been drinking and he pulled up to a gas station where Clinton Melton worked. Clinton Melton, he was a black guy. Okay. He had told Clinton to fill up his car with gas. And when he told him what the total was, afterwards it was about $5. Elmer actually got really violent and shouted that he only asked for $3 worth of gas. You so said fill it up, idiot. He did. He did say to fill it up. 
So he was saying that he wasn't listening and all this other stuff. And Clinton was just like, you know, hey, you, you said to fill it up. I'm sorry. I, I filled it he up. He did what he was told. Yeah, he did his job. Kimball actually got into this rage and drove off shouting, don't be here when I get back. He's just doing his fucking job. So anyways, the white station owner actually saw it all happen. And he told Clinton to go home. But before he could even go, Elmer returned with a shotgun, and he shot him once in the hand, and then once in the head. Oh my god. His wife, Beulah, was actually driving home just days before the court date was set to start, and she was ran off the road. It's still kind of up for debate if she ran off or, you know, got ran off or something. But either way, she crashed into the Black Bayou River. She had two kids in the back, five and three, and the five-year-old girl's uncle actually saw the crash and rushed to rescue the kids from the back seat. But, unfortunately, Beulah had actually died in the crash. Oh my god. The trial moved forward, obviously, and it was in the same courthouse that Emmett's case was held at. Really? It was with the same sheriff in charge. Of course. And Elmer Kimball even had the same defense attorneys as Millam and Bryant. I'm not surprised. Um, I wasn't surprised either. Elmer claimed self-defense, that Clinton had fired first, but neither witnesses, including the white station owner, said that they saw or heard Clinton fire a weapon. Also, there was no weapon found on Clinton's body or in the car. So, the jury deliberated for about four hours. Again, it was an all-white jury, and they found Elmer not guilty. So, this just goes to show me that the NAACP in it had nothing to do with the outcome. No. Your outcome was going to be to protect white people no matter what. Yes. That, that's ridiculous. So, after Emmett's verdict was released, there was shock around the world. There were demands for anti-lynching legislation, the end to racial segregation, black voting rights, and some even suggested sending federal troops to Mississippi. Yeah, it, it is pretty bad down there. There were demonstrations across the country to protest and just completely demonstrate their outrage. But it wasn't just across the country, there were even some as far away as France, such as a protest led by Josephine Baker in Paris. Have you ever heard of Josephine Baker? The name, that name rings a bell for me, but I don't know exactly why or what it is, but I do remember, I've heard that name before. Okay, well, Josephine Baker was born June 3rd, 1906, and she lived in a racially mixed, low-income neighborhood in St. Louis that consisted mainly of rooming houses, brothels, and apartments without indoor plumbing. She was poorly dressed and hungry as a child, developing street smarts by playing in the railroad yards at Union Station. By age 12, she dropped out of school, and by 13, she was working as a waitress at Old Chauffeur's Club. It was kind of like a little hangout for jazz musicians and entertainment types. She also lived as a street child, sleeping in cardboard shelters and looking for food in garbage cans while making a living dancing on street corners. She met a man at the club she worked at and married him when she was only 13. But it only lasted a year, and then she found work with a street performance group called the Jones Family Band. She got married at 13 for the first time. She's a baby. 
She is a baby. Well, she got married for the second time at age 15. I just... <laughs> this was to Howard Baker. And at this time, her mother would actually scold her for not tending to her husband and for wanting to be an entertainer. Yeah. She's 15. Yeah. I mean, oh my God. She actually left him and got divorced from him in 1925, but she had already kind of started to see significant success in her career after going to New York City at a venue up there. Okay. So she actually continued to use his last name for the rest of her life. So that's why she's Josephine Baker. Okay. She was really noticed in New York and sailed to Paris in 1925, which is where she really got her first big break in a city. A big reason for the move to France was to escape the segregation and injustices that she was facing in America. I don't blame her. Especially she was, you know, working on having a very successful career. Yeah, you could be successful and be black in America at this time. And really, honestly, it's still hard. It's- it is. Sadly. She became an instant success over in France for her erotic dancing, and she pretty much appeared practically nude on stage. Her most famous costume was a skirt made of a string of artificial bananas. Do you remember that? Hang on, let me show you the picture. I don't know what I was picturing, but that's... Huh. Yeah, it's it's a very famous picture, actually. That's really cool, though, in a way. It's very creative. <laughs> She was the most successful American entertainer working in France, and Ernest Hemingway actually called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw. He spent hours talking to her in bars. Wow, that says a lot. Ernest Hemingway. Another one I didn't think really was around the same time, but Picasso drew paintings depicting her beauty. I thought that was pretty interesting. She's got a lot of things to be, you know, to brag proud about. about. Yeah, you know, already. To be very proud about. Already. Which, I mean, you show me pictures of her. She's very pretty. She so is. I see. She actually even endorsed a hair gel, bananas, shoes, and a bunch of other things. So, I mean, she, she was endorsing stuff. She had some stuff really going for her. She never really reached the same success in the U.S., and with the racism and hatred, she actually decided after visiting and coming back to France, She gave up her American citizenship. She just renounced it and decided to become a French citizen. I don't blame her. I don't either. In 1939, during World War II, she was actually recruited by the French Military Intelligence Agency as an honorable correspondent. Really? She socialized with Germans at embassies, ministries, and nightclubs while charming them to secretly get information. What does this woman not done? (laughs) Well, <laughs> she's done a lot in her life, that's for sure. She's led a badass, cool life. I'm, I'm, Wow. Her fame allowed her to be around all kinds of people, such as high-ranking Japanese officials and Italian bureaucrats. She attended parties and gathered information without raising any suspicion. Wow. She ended up moving to the south of France when the Germans invaded, but... She had an excuse as an entertainer to just kind of move around Europe. So she actually carried information about airfields, harbors, and stuff like German troop concentrations in the west of France written in invisible ink on her sheet music so she could pass it off to England. How smart. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. She went on later in 1941 to Morocco where she did tours of Spain and she pinned notes with information she gathered to her underwear. They weren't going to search her underwear. 
And she wow. was she was famous. So after the war, she was awarded the Resistance Medal by the French Committee of the National Liberation. How fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, very, very interesting. I can't believe I haven't heard more about her. In 1951, after the war had ended, she was actually invited back to the U.S. to perform at a nightclub. They told her that she would have to perform for a segregated audience, and she absolutely refused. She ended up getting her way, and the show was desegregated, and she ended up following that sold-out show with a national tour. Holy shit. This even caused her to get threatening phone calls from people claiming to be in the KKK. But she publicly said that she wasn't afraid of them. Good for her. She also worked with the NAACP and had such a reputation as a crusader that the NAACP had May 20th, 1951, declared Josephine Baker Day. Why don't we I, I talk didn't know about that? I was going to say, I didn't know that. In 1963, she spoke at the March on Washington at the side of Martin Luther King Jr., she was the only official female speaker. Holy shit. And a little interesting tidbit about that, Mammy was actually invited to speak at that as well, but she didn't get that invitation. Really? Yeah, so she was actually invited to come speak as well. So Josephine was a dancer, a singer, an actress, and she was actually the first black woman to star in a major motion picture. It was a silent film, but it was called Siren of the Tropics from 1927. So, she lived a hell of a life. Yes, she did. She she was an entertainer, a spy, an activist. She was amazing. That's one hell of a life. I'm jealous. I mean... I, <laughs> there, you could do a whole episode on her. You really could. I'm sitting here thinking about that. I'm like... And I've thought be- about it in the past, but I really... Since she legit held a rally due to Emmett, I had to include her in this. And it was the only way I could just put a little bit of her in there. Right. So maybe we'll touch on her again in the future. But until then, look look into her. She's amazing. So back to Mammy. After she got back to Chicago, she didn't settle down. She knew she had to do something about the injustices, so when the NAACP asked her to tour the country and talk about her son's life, death, and the trial of his murderers, she did it. It was one of the most successful fundraising campaigns that NAACP had ever conducted. I really believe that. She spoke from her heart what it was like to send her son away and to have him come back in a box and to have to examine him and the pain she felt for what he had to suffer. She spoke about the trial being a farce and how she would not harbor any hatred towards whites, but she could no longer accept their hatred of her or black people. I I don't see a problem with that. I don't either. I agree with that. She's not asking for a lot. No. She raised a lot of money speaking for the NAACP. In fact, she visited 33 cities in 19 states. But eventually, when she was asking for money to be able to help pay her bills and to not worry about her finances, Roy Wilkins of the NAACP told her that she was trying to capitalize on her son's death. It hurt her so bad she hung up the phone. 
It it really bothered her. She's doing these tours. I mean, and I will. I, I first I, of all, I get. I'm not I get talking, both sides. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. First of all, I'm not talking negative about the NAACP. I get what they're. I, I get it. But to say people that, have done that in the past before her. Yes, but she. The way I'm looking at it is, she temporarily gave up her work and her life to go speak about this and bring you know you know. A, she just wants to be for it. secure, and she just wants to make sure that when she goes back, she's gonna have a house and everything to go back to, like running water and or I don't know. Every, yeah, yeah, everything. She didn't have her anymore. Well, I was gonna, that's why I stopped yeah, everything. Yeah. Uh, actually, a little tidbit. They had a TV, and a lot of people didn't know, but the TV they had was actually Emmett's. Really? Yeah, it was Emmett's TV. Yeah, I found that out during all this research, and I was like, oh, that that's big for a black kid in that time to have his to own have TV. A, yes. That's, that's huge. For even a person to have a TV at that time. Which I'm sure he probably worked up and got the oh, money Oh, yeah. For you know he was working his ass off. So, as hurt as Mammy was, she eventually, like, within that week, wrote a letter to him saying that the objective of the NAACP is of much greater concern to me than my pocketbook. I set out to trade the blood of my child for the betterment of my race, and I do not wish now to deviate from that course. Please let me go forward for the NAACP. It is a duty. But it was too late. They ended up parting ways. Really? They did. It very sad. The part where she says, you know, I set out to set out to trade the blood of my child for the betterment of my race. Mm-hmm. That it, it hits hard. Yes. It cuts deep. The blood of my child for the betterment of my race. So this very clearly put her in a very deep funk. Uh, one day, One day she was sitting at home alone about a year after Emmett's death and she started feeling sorry for herself and I understand that. And she wondered what she was going to do. It didn't take her long. She immediately thought, I'm going to end it all. She was just done. She got up and she walked over to a window, but it was actually painted shut. So she walked over to another window and she thought about jumping out of it. Then she started contemplating her death. Like, she was like, okay, well, if I jump out the front, kids are playing down there. I don't want to ruin that. So if I jump out the back here, then my body probably won't be found for a couple days. But I've got a dress on, and, you know, I don't want it to fly up. And she really was contemplating this. And even though that speaks as the type of person that she is. Because she's still thinking of others. She's still thinking of others, even as she's talking, thinking of ending her own life. She's worried about not ruining these child, you know, a child's day for or their life forever. Yes. You know, witnessing her kill herself, and then worrying about if her dress flies up and reveals something, and and not being modest, and not being modest. Yeah. So thankfully, the phone rang and it interrupted her. It was a reporter that was doing a follow-up story on her, and he was wanting to know what she planned to do. Well, she couldn't tell him that she was going to jump out of the window. That's what I was going to say. So, she just, out of nowhere, she it surprised her so much that she was like, where in the fuck did that come from? She said she wanted to go back to school and become a teacher. She don't know where it came from, but it, it came out. So? It was Emmett. About a year after Emmett's death, she began to earn her degree at Chicago's Teachers College, which is now known as the Chicago State University since 1971. Really? Yes. She became a teacher at Carter Elementary in 1960, and she stayed until she retired in 1983. Wow. Even though, during that time, 
She also obtained a master's degree in educational administration from Loyola University, Chicago in 1976. You go, Mammy. Okay. Yes. She went all the way. She did end up marrying Gene Mobley in 1957. They remained together happily until he died in 2000. He had a stroke at the age of 76. Still young. Wow. It's pretty young. But, I mean, they went through a lot together. They went through, yes. In 1937, she formed the Emmett Till Players. You ever heard of it? Mm Mm-mm. I hadn't either, and I was really bummed I hadn't. It was a program where children would memorize speeches by Martin Luther King Jr. and perform them all over the country, which benefited hundreds of young people. Really? Mm-hmm. They, they would even go to Mississippi and do this. They, they went everywhere. She continued speaking here and there throughout the rest of her life. She went to a lot of events and stuff. And she ended up dying of heart failure on January 6, 2003. And she was buried near Emmett in Baroque Cemetery in Chicago. 2003. Again, that's not that long ago. His mother died in 2003. He could still be alive. It's ridiculous. This isn't forever ago. This shit didn't happen forever ago. It's still going on. It is. So, jumping back into more impact that Emmett and Mammy had, let's jump into Rosa Parks getting arrested on December 1st, 1955. But first, let's really talk about Rosa Parks a little bit more. Everyone thinks she's just some old black lady that didn't want to get up on the bus seat, right? That That's pretty much what you know, isn't it? I love how you phrased that. But well, I mean, that's how a lot of people see it. You're right. <laughs> but I still see her as a political, I mean, not really. Political figure, is that really what I'm looking for? Um, civil rights Civil activist. rights, there we go. Thank yeah. you. Yes, not political. Civil rights activist. Yes, I completely butchered that. But that's what I see her as. But yeah. Go ahead. She was born on February 4th, 1913 in Tuskegee, Alabama, which isn't really that far outside of Montgomery. It's about like a 40-minute drive. And today, I GPSed it. (laughs) (laughs) As a small child, she actually had chronic tonsillitis, and one of her great-grandfathers was Scotch-Irish, and one of her great-grandmothers was part Native American slave. I didn't know this. I had to include it because I... First of all, I didn't know she had chronic illness, chronic tonsillitis as a kid. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that she was part Scotch-Irish and part Native American slave. I didn't know that either. That's crazy. Her parents ended up separating when she was about two years old, and she moved with her mother to Pine Level, which is even closer to Montgomery, just right outside of it. It's only about a 15 to 20 minute drive. Okay. In, according to today's GPS. <laughs> <laughs> She grew up on a farm with her mom's parents, her mom, and her younger brother, Sylvester. She attended rural schools until the age of 11, and her mom taught her a lot about sewing. I don't know if you knew this, but she she did a lot with sewing. No, I didn't know that. She put her first quilt together by herself around the age of 10. That's That's impressive. It's very impressive. At 11, she became a student at the Industrial School for Girls in Montgomery, where she learned a lot more about sewing. One of the things she remembers growing up was she remembers the KKK marching down the street in front of their house and their grandfather guarding the front door with a shotgun. That's terrifying. She was often bullied by the other white children in the neighborhood, but once she remembers when she was about 10 years old, a white boy actually threatened to punch her. So she reached over and picked up a brick and dared him to hit her. Obviously, 
that de-escalated everything and was gone. So she ended up telling her mom about it later on that night. Her mom chewed her ass out. For 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 standing up to a white boy. even even a white boy even a kid. You don't stand up to a white person. Yeah, because he could have went back to his parents and said, "Hey, this girl did this and that." The and, whole family could have been lynched. and the whole family. Yes. Yeah. I was just gonna so say. So she it actually would be got her ass chewed up. She was always taught to stand up for herself. But she was also taught pretty much how it is. White people get what they want. Which they still do. Or we still Wait, do. Especially white men. Mm. When she was 19, she met Raymond Parks through a mutual friend. Raymond was actually about 9 or 10 years older. He was a light-skinned man, which she actually wasn't very fond of. They, you know, he, he was a very light-skinned man. He was mistaken for nearly being white. Oh, what? Okay. He was a barber and an activist. He was part of the NAACP. Okay. He was also a very fashionable dresser. So maybe, you know, maybe that's something that got her interested. Because at first they were just friends. But eventually they started dating. And they actually got married in 1932 while she was still 19 years old. So, look at you, Raymond. All right. Okay. He was a member of the NAACP, like I said, and currently the NAACP was actually collecting money to support the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. Have you ever heard of the Scottsboro Boys? Maybe. Well, on March 25th, 1931, nine black teenagers, ages 13 to 20, hopped on a freight train, which was common for white and black people at that time to do. It was called uh, hoboing. Mm-hmm. But they hopped on the train to, you know, just go somewhere else. It was kind of like a way of traveling. In yeah, a way. yeah. And if you're hopping on a train, you don't have to pay. Right. Which, of course, was illegal, but whatever. A group of white teenage boys attempted to push one of the black boys off the train, oh claiming that it was a white man's train. First of all, you hopped on the motherfucker, too, so no. The group of white boys grabbed rocks and tried to force the black guys off the train, but it actually broke out into a brawl. The white teenagers actually kind of got humiliated, and it's unclear whether they jumped off the train or were pushed off the train, but I'm going to say they jumped off the train. They actually reported being attacked by a group of black teenagers to the sheriff. Of course they did. Mm -hmm. So the sheriff got the train stopped, and they searched the train, not only finding the black boys, but they also found two young white women that accused the black guys uh, of raping them. I was going to say, I know where this is going. Second, you said two white women. Why would they accuse them of raping them? Because that was kind of the norm back then. Well, and yeah, wanting... you could say anything if it was against a black person. You could say anything, and it would be believed. These two ladies were actually up for charges of vagrancy and illegal sexual activity. You remember vagrancy, being homeless, mm-hmm. from our Macrae episode, I believe. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming illegal sexual activity, me and Tina talked about it, I'm assuming prostitution. That's what I was going to say, I'm thinking prostitution on that. So here they are facing these charges, and they think, well, if we say that these black guys raped us, the then us. we'll be fine. So all but the 13-year-old black boy were convicted of rape and sentenced to death, even though there was no medical evidence that a rape had taken place. The cases were appealed, 
And during the retrial, one of the women actually admitted to lying about the rape and said none of the Scottsboro boys touched either one of the women. But the jury still found the defendants guilty, so the judge decided to grant a new trial. Are you... Seriously. <laughs> it's ridiculous. They literally admitted, said that they lied, but the jury One still... of them did. Oh, yeah. one of them. But still... One of them actually switched and testified for the defense. And then the and then the jury or the judge still said, "Well, they're guilty." You know. Well, the jury de- decided they were guilty. The judge decided to grant a new trial. So the charges were actually dropped on four of the nine boys, and five of them received sentences from seventy-five years to death for what? Raping these women. But they, even though the woman took it back right there. So that just goes <laughs> to show: don't say shit. Don't say. Just keep your mouth just, shut. Try don't don't try to pin shit on other people because that shit still happens. Yes. And you can still ruin someone's life today. Mm. In December nineteen forty three, back to Rosa Parks, she attended the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and was actually elected secretary. Really? Well, later she actually said that she was the only woman there and they needed a secretary, which, <laughs> you know, was a woman's job back then. Yeah. And she was too timid to say no. <laughs> so she became secretary until 1957. Hey, you want to be the secretary? You're the only one here. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks. All right. <laughs> so how much do you really know about segregation on the buses at Montgomery at this time? There's a certain portion on the bus where is a line, more like an invisible line, you know, of the white people sit more towards the front and black people sit towards the back, right? About how much is white and how much is black? I'm going to say 95% white, 5% black. That is a very, very common and wrong misconception of it. Okay. So, the first four rows of seats in the front were reserved for the whites. The rest of it was for the blacks. However, about 75% of the riders were black. That's why there was so much more. Okay. The invisible line you're talking about? Yeah. They actually had a sign that said colored on it. The only so thing it's not was the, no, it wasn't invisible at all. The only thing about the sign was they could actually go pick it up and move it to another seat. So they could move the rows back. Of course. When the white rows were filled, black people were expected to move to the rear and if there was no more room, they had to stand. stand. They couldn't share a seat. They couldn't even share a row. If a white person needed a seat, the entire row of black people would have to move so that one white person could sit there. They couldn't even share a fucking row. Not even, like, across from each other. So I was picturing, you know, when you said row, I'm thinking it has to be across. Not only that, black people had to get on in the front, pay the fare, get off the the bus... Walk to the back and then get in through the rear entrance of the bus. I didn't they couldn't know even that. walk past the white people. Because I'm thinking, you know, they had to pay and then they walk past the white people and they probably have to deal with their bullshit. I didn't think that they actually no, had they to actually walk had to back get out. Off. Even they- in the rain and the snow, it didn't matter. You had to get off. And you know, it's really fucked up. And this happened to Rosa Parks. It was actually pretty common for drivers to take the fare. And then whenever they got off to go to the back of the bus, take they would off. just drive off. And they would have to, like, follow them to the next stop before they could get on. That's... It's just immature bullshit. 
It's, it's ridiculous. So December 1st, 1955, Rosa had been working all day and paid her fare to get on the bus and sat in an empty seat in the first row of colored seats, which was near the middle of the bus. In fact, her row was directly behind the 10 seats reserved for white people. Okay. By the third stop after she had gotten on, all the white seats had filled up and there were about two or three white passengers that were standing. So the bus driver moved the color sign that I was talking about to the row behind the row that behind Rosa Parks her. was in. And he demanded for the four black people there to get up and give up their seats. Mm-hmm. He said, y'all better make it light on yourselves and let me have those seats. But she just said she moved towards the window. Like so she, she just, she just scooted a little closer to the window and, you know, had a little purse there. A lot of people say, like I said, she was an old woman, she was tired, and her feet hurt. Rosa Parks has debunked this herself. That is not the case. She would tell you that, yes, she was tired, but not physically. At this time, she was only 42. She was tired of everything going on. She was tired of the bullshit. Yes. She actually said that she thought about Emmett Till, and she just couldn't go back. She was tired of black people being mistreated, and she was ready to take a stand. So the bus driver said, why don't you stand up? And she said, well, I don't think I should have to stand up. Exactly. So he said he was going to call the police. And she said, well, you may do that. I was just going to fucking call him. (laughs) She stayed seated, and she stayed calm. She did not make a scene or anything. When the police came to arrest her, he asked her why she didn't give up her seat, and her only reply was, why do you push us around? And she remembered him saying, I don't know, but the law's the law, and you're under arrest. And she was charged with violating the segregation law. But the law's the law, and you're under arrest. What kind of fucking answer is that? And, like, he don't even know why he's arresting you. I don't even think he wants to arrest you. (sighs) When they took her to jail, she actually asked for a drink of water, and they refused to give it to her. They finally allowed her to call home, where Raymond promised to find a way to get her right away, but he didn't have a car, and you had to have a bell bondsman. You couldn't just go do it yourself. About 9.30 that night, Edie Nixon, the president of the chapter of the NAACP there in Montgomery, Mm -hmm. paid her $100 bond and took her back to their apartment, her and Raymond's apartment, and they started talking about the next step, because this was an opportunity to fight segregation. An opportunity they had actually already been looking for, but they just hadn't found the right face for it. On March 2nd of 1955, there was a girl named Claudette Colvin. Have you ever heard of her? I don't think so. This is about nine months before Rosa Parks. Okay. So yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of her. She got on a bus on the way home from school. She was only about 15 years old at the time. And on the way home, the white section filled up, so the driver told the three students sitting in the row to get up. Mm -hmm. Claudette refused to move. They had actually been studying stuff about the Constitution in school. So she was thinking to herself, like, you know, I know I have rights. Yeah, I was going to say she knows her rights. So the white woman refused to sit down in the same row as her because, of course, that meant they were equal. So she ain't going to sit down next to a black girl. Fucking prick. So the driver said, why are you still sitting there? And another white passenger said, you gotta get up. And the girl from the back said, she ain't gotta do nothing but stay black and die. Facts. Yeah. So two cops very roughly arrested her and pulled her off the bus. Colvin said that when they came to arrest her, she actually just went limp and didn't fight back. But 
some people said that she was fighting back like a little lioness or something. I don't know. I believe I believe Claudette. I was going to say, I agree with I don't you. believe any white person from this point. I agree. Really. So, in the patrol car, the officers actually mocked her, and they made comments on her body, making her feel really uncomfortable and really worrying about them trying to rape her. Oh, my God. She actually tried to, like, cover her crotch and keep her mind on other things. I didn't include this, but there are several instances of white cops raping black women, even killing them, and getting away with it. There are tons of stories to look into, even in this area in this time. Oh my god. I'm not surprised. I'm not either. Rosa Parks and her white ally slash employer, Virginia Durr, they raised money to help Colvin's case. So Rosa Parks didn't know about Claudette. Okay. And they were really hopeful that her arrest would help other young black people get involved with the NAACP youth meetings and stuff. Colvin was charged with disturbing the peace, breaking the segregation law, and for assaulting the officers who arrested her. But the first two charges were dropped and they just found her guilty of assault. But she didn't do shit. No. So her case didn't directly challenge the segregation law. At this point, it was assault. Okay. And she was young. She was 15. And I've heard both ways that it was a rumor or that she was at the time. But she was pregnant either way at some point during this summer. Okay. She also had dark skin. And that's something that a lot of people also don't realize. There is racism within the black community as well. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of lighter-skinned black people, especially in this time, saw the darker black-skinned people as lower class. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't matter what tone your skin is. You are all the same. Everyone is the same. You and I are the same. I'll say us included. Yes, everyone is the same. The amount of melanin in your skin does not make you better or worse. It's the way you act. She wasn't really seen as being a very good face. Since she was young, she was pregnant, she had dark skin, she was seen as being feisty and uncontrollable by a lot of adults, and she lived on the wrong side of town. So, I mean, that automatically gets you knocked down a couple notches, unfortunately. So Rosa Parks actually decided to go forward being the face since she had good employment history, a good marital status, and she actually had a really good standing in the community. Between her arrest and her trial, Edie Nixon organized a meeting with local ministers at Martin Luther King Jr.'s church to propose a boycott of the city buses. This is where they actually chose Martin Luther King Jr. to lead the boycott because he was a young minister and he was new to Montgomery, so he hadn't really been intimidated by all the stuff of the city. Right. This actually also started to pull in Martin Luther King Jr. So, Emmett Till, I don't understand why we don't hear more about him. Well, he plays a very, very He's a very big key player. Very, very big key player. <laughs> the boycott was actually really simple. They were only really proposing three demands. They wanted courteous treatment by the bus operators. Mm-hmm. That seems fair. Mm-hmm. Passengers seated on a first-come, first-served basis with black people seated in the back half and white people seated in the front half. I don't even think it needs to be segregated, but that still seems fair. I think for that time period, they were just trying to compensate to keep less, you know, 
Just, just. But this, this is how fair they're trying to be. Right. Like, we'll still give you what you want. We just want a little better treatment. Exactly. They're still being considerate. And the last thing was that black people would be employed as bus operators on routes that were predominantly taken by black people. That would make a lot of sense. That would make a lot of sense. So they thought that this, these would be more likely to be accepted than a demand for a full integration of the buses. And I I agree with that. And that's whatever I was hinting at, you know, with the time period and everything. Because I think if they tried to go forward with the full integration, they knew it automatically didn't it was gonna matter be shut what the fuck down. they said. Yeah. It was going to get shut down. I mean, you're still coming out of Jim Crow. Yeah. Brown versus Board of Education was only a year before this. Which I'm not saying that they're being that they was not ever considerate, but they were more or less forced to and had to have an obligation to be considerate just to yeah. hope that they yeah. they could remotely be considered to be accepted by this and let it pass. So on December fifth, Rosa Parks was found guilty and she was fined ten dollars plus a four dollar court cost. I wish it was that cheap now. Right. But the boycott started on the same day, where about forty thousand black bus riders joined in. Remember I said black people were like 75% of the riders in Montgomery? Yeah. This, the city still resisted to comply with the demands, so black leaders organized carpools to ensure the boycott would continue. Okay. People chose to walk to work or wherever they were going to go. Like, they were, they, more, they were cool with it. They were good. They, they didn't were need the bus. Kind of telling them, right, like, if you're not going to at least try to consider us and fuck you, we're going to make it to where you... You go in debt because of us. <laughs> the boycott actually cost the city about $3,000 per day. Damn. And not only did it cost the transportation system, but it also affected local businesses because black people were actually finding other things to do with their money. And oftentimes, it was with other black families. So, they were really keeping their money to themselves, and I'm fucking proud of it. I agree. The boycott lasted for nearly a year where the buses were virtually empty. White riders were actually having to pay more, since they were losing between thirty and 40,000 fares a day. Wow. Entire routes were having to be shut down. The city lost millions. As they should. After seven months, local police began to harass Martin Luther King Jr. and other leaders. They would arrest carpool drivers for petty traffic violations like having too many people in the car. Yeah. Since when is there a law of how many fucking people you can have in a car? I mean, well, now there is with seatbelts. I was going to say with seatbelts are HOV lanes, but you know. They they are just coming (laughs) up with shit. And, of course, there were threats all around, but the boycott still remained over 90% successful. It was motivated in part with the promise of equality that was shown in Brown vs. Board of Education. So the bus company reluctantly desegregated the buses in November of 1956. Took them long enough. Well, that's only because the Supreme Court ruled that bus segregation laws were unconstitutional. It took the Supreme (laughs) Court to say it for you to finally do something. Yeah, well, the boycott didn't officially end until December 20th, 1956, (laughs) after 382 days. Damn. You can already imagine the white backlash. Of course. It was pretty bad. Two days after the desegregated seating, someone fired a shotgun through the front of Martin Luther King Jr.'s house. Holy shit. On Christmas Eve, white men attacked a black teenager as she got off the bus. Four days after that, two buses were shot at by snipers and a pregnant woman was shot in both legs during one of those shootings. Holy shit. January 10th, 1957, 
five black churches in the home of Reverend Robert Grace, which was actually white. They were bombed, and he was one of the few white people in Montgomery that publicly sided with the Montgomery Improvement Association in the boycott. It was later found out that it was a group of seven KKK members that were charged with the bombings. They were acquitted. Of course they were. They also ended up lynching Willie Edwards on January 23rd for dating a white woman. Or, they thought that he was. His body wasn't discovered for three months, and after it had washed up on the shore of the river, officials said that the decomposition made it impossible to determine the cause of death. So, you know how that went, too. Again, they got away with it. This all led to a city passing an ordinance in March of 1957 that would make it unlawful for white or colored persons to play together or in company with each other in any game of cards, dice, dominoes, checkers, pool, billiards, softball, basketball, baseball, football, golf, track, and at any swimming pools, beaches, lakes, or ponds, or, just in case they missed anything, any other game or games or athletic contest, either indoors or outdoors. Are you fucking serious? You had to list everything? Just to keep white people and black people from hanging out together? Fucking ridiculous. Rosa Parks ended up leaving Montgomery due to death threats and being blacklisted from so many employment opportunities. She and her husband moved to Virginia first, and then later on that year, they actually went to Detroit after her brother and sister-in-law kept urging her to move up there. She died of natural causes October 24, 2005, at the age of 92, in her apartment in Detroit. Something I didn't include in here, I don't remember exactly how old she was, but she, she was on up there in age, I want to say it was right before she died. She actually had her apartment broken into. Really? And she fought off the guy and survived. Like, she, yeah, she's a tough bitch, man. <laughs> she's amazing. When she died, the city officials in Detroit and Montgomery actually announced on October 27, 2005, that the front seats of their city buses would be reserved with black ribbons in her honor until her funeral, which wasn't that. until November 2nd. I love that. So, do you think that was the end of me talking about Emmett Till? No, I'm no, sure there No, were. there's more. <laughs> 50 years after his death, in 2005, as the FBI was investigating more than 20 cases in the killings of the Jim Crow South, 20, that have been reopened in the recent years to then, Emmett Till was one of the cases that was reopened, and in part of their investigation, they wanted to exhume his body so authorities could confirm once and for all that the body was Emmett Till. They also hoped to determine the cause of death and to identify any remaining evidence that may link the killers to him, since an autopsy was never done. You remember the trial. Mm -hmm. They tried to say it wasn't his body. Mm -hmm. They didn't have DNA testing then. Mm -hmm. the, only, the only thing they had was assuming that the family wasn't lying, I guess? It kind of helped Emmett's family out as well, exhuming him to confirm it was him. Right. Because it, it just puts anything in question to rest. Completely. The test did confirm that it was Emmett. And the case was closed after a Mississippi grand jury decided not to return an indictment against any other possible participants in his killing. 
This is again where Carolyn should have been arrested. I agree. She's the same as a Nazi. She's the reason that Emmett's not alive right now, I'm sure of it. So, that's what I think. Exactly, because none of this would have happened if she hadn't opened her big-ass fat mouth, I'm Mm -hmm. just saying. With her lies. With her bullshit that she later on says was a lie. And And I am going to be getting her book, and I am going to be reading it, because I want to see her lies. (laughs) So, his casket was actually in such bad shape after the years that the state law actually required him to be buried in a new casket. So the original casket was supposed to be reconditioned so it could become part of a memorial for Emmett. Oh. But the cemetery never really said anything else about it. So let's jump to 2009, because Emmett sticks around. (laughs) So there was a scandal at Burr Oak Cemetery. That's where Emmett was buried. Isn't that where Emmett was buried? That's where Emmett and his family and several others actually were buried. There were four workers at the cemetery that had dug up more than 200 graves and dumped the bodies in mass graves that were unmarked, and they resold the plots. Oh, shit. This had gone on for over five years, and I was honestly surprised. I looked up the people. It was three black men and a black woman. I really honestly thought they were going to be white. I'm not going to lie, because I thought it was going to be someone that just didn't give a fuck. Yeah. But no, that's not the case. I was surprised. So during the investigation, they actually closed the cemetery to try to identify all the bodies and the markers properly. They had found out that there were between 140,000 and 147,500 people buried at Baroque, but they only had enough space to hold 130,000 people. Oh my god. So that's 10 to 17,500 people extra. That's a lot of fucking people. And not only that, some of the areas hadn't even been used for graves yet. So they still had some empty plots. Yeah. A federal judge actually approved a plan to renovate and run the cemetery, but no worries. During this time, Emmett's body was not dug up. His body was left right there. So he was not disturbed during this. His casket, however, the one that was supposed to be reconditioned and Mm -hmm. put into memorial... It was found in the back of a shed, rusted, discolored, and the fabric was in really poor shape. It was just dilapidated. In 2010, Smithsonian Museum curators visited Thacker Caskets facility to learn more about the funeral industry and caskets. This is where I work. I was going to say, Thacker, okay. (laughs) So a little backstory, Thacker was founded in 1939 in Washington, D.C. Originally, it was Old Dominion Casket Company. It was a small local funeral supplier serving customers in the greater Washington, D.C. market. They changed their name to Thacker Caskets in the early 1970s. Their headquarters is in Clinton, Maryland currently. They moved it back then. They expanded in 2005 to have a manufacturing facility in Alabama, which is the one I'm working at. Thacker Caskets is currently in its third generation being a family-involved company. I also love how you completely triangulated yourself, but I understand the point uh, well, of what you're doing, but still. <laughs> I don't I don't care if people know where I work. It's not where I live. <laughs> well, I pretty much live there. Exactly. <laughs> oh, well. They're actually the largest family-owned casket company in the U.S. Wow. And in 2010, the museum curators were impressed enough to reach out to Thacker and to look for help restoring the casket. That's really so, cool. Yeah, I triangulated where I am, but I am proud of where I work. I would be proud of that, too, because that's... Especially with this tie. Right. That's really cool. 
The casket was actually analyzed for about a year at the Smithsonian Research Facility, where every original piece of the casket was cataloged to ensure the restoration was going to be as period-correct as possible. The casket was then shipped to Thacker Manufacturing, which is where Justin Thacker and museum conservators began the restoration process. Most of the casket components were actually restored straight by Thacker. What they couldn't restore themselves, they actually got other companies to make as close to the original as possible. Something I didn't even know. The sewing department there at Thacker, even some of the people I still work with, they used methods that were specific to the time period, which they don't use in casket production anymore. That's so cool. Yeah. Hundreds of hours were put into this one single casket. A lot of you guys don't know this. We put out close to 300 caskets a day. That's a lot. A lot. So, I mean, yes, we don't spend just a minute on each casket. There are several people that touch that casket before it goes out the door. But to put hundreds of hours into one casket, I can't imagine. That's that's phenomenal. I wish I could have been a part of it. Right. It's actually now a permanent fixture at the National Museum of African American History and Culture in the Smithsonian, and it has been since September 24th, 2016. How cool. So that, that's it, right? Surely that's it, right? No. I can no. tell about the face that you're giving me. <laughs> no, that's not it. So in 2008, there was finally a sign that was put up at the Tallahatchie River location marking where Emmett Till's body was pulled out of the river as a memorial. The sign was stolen and thrown into the river. So they replaced it. Soon it had bullet holes all through it. Seriously? They replaced it a third time, which was just hit with even more bullets. There were even these three old Miss students that were holding two guns. Two of them were holding guns, and they decided to pose with the bullet-ridden sign. And one of them posted it to their Instagram. The fraternity they were in kicked them out of the frat. Good. But the school said that even though it was awful, it didn't violate school policy. How? Well, so Ole Miss didn't do anything. Does that really surprise you? They replaced it with a fourth sign. But this fourth sign is made of steel. It's over an inch thick. It's more than 500 pounds. And the manufacturer said it was bulletproof. Okay. But they also protected it with a gate. And they've got security cameras now. Good. So, I hope if anyone thinks about trying to deface it now, you get what's coming to you. No one should have defaced it in the first place. Exactly. So, there is still some good that's coming out of it. On March 29th, 2022, again, that's how recent this shit is. just last year. President Joe Biden signed a bill into law called the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, which allows an act to be prosecuted as a lynching when a person conspires to commit a hate crime that results in death, serious bodily injury, and other serious harms which classifies lynching as a federal hate crime, punishable by up to 30 years in prison. And if I'm reading this right, I believe that's an additional 30 years on top of the crime for it being a hate crime. Okay. So say you murder someone and it's a hate crime, you would get the murder charge plus up to an additional 30 years for it being a hate. It's not over. It's nowhere close. Look around you. Watch the news. It's it's still everywhere. It's history, but it's not. Mm -hmm. 
Have you heard about the black residents in Kansas City that raised concerns to the police back in September 2022 about the uh, serial killer that was targeting black women? Yes, I did. You remember the the police completely dismissed the claims, right? Yeah, they said it was bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. They said the claim is completely unfounded. There is no basis to support this rumor, and that is a quote. I got that quoted in there. October 7th, 2022. A 22-year-old black woman escaped from a home outside of Kansas City wearing practically nothing but a collar and a lock around her neck. She ran to a neighboring house. She told the police that she had been locked in a basement for a month and that 39-year-old Timothy Hazlitt was her abductor. She escaped while he was taking his son out to school one morning. Wasn't he... Didn't he uh, try to keep her as a slave and try to abuse her and do th- things to her because of, Well, she had know, been like- taken about a month before and she was constantly raped and beaten. And she also said her friends didn't make it out, so they were actually looking into two more deaths, which I That's couldn't terrible. find it in the quick research I did for this because I knew I was just going to touch on it a little bit. Yeah. But I think they found two barrels in the basement. So the Kansas City Police they're still claiming that they were in the right to dismiss the concerns as rumors because they hadn't received any formal missing person reports. Oh my god. It's still happening. It is still fucking happening. Just because they're black, they're not paying attention. Mm-hmm. It's exactly it. I mean, that's just like the whole Black Lives Matter thing, or, you know, movement, I should say. Sorry, the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, still to this day, I feel like that's still not being taken serious, you know. Which I I actually have heard some controversial things about Black Lives Matters. About them, like, Breonna Taylor actually never, her mom never got money from them. I don't know how accurate that is, so I'm not going to say one way or another on that. But the principle behind it Mm -hmm. of Black Lives Do Matter, I do 100% agree with. Yes, and that's what I'm mainly talking about is not like any organization in particular. I just mean the movement in general of like trying to talk about the importance of Black Lives and why they matter. We need to be equal. We all need to see everyone equal to each other. We need to stop thinking that white people are superior, black people are inferior, or whatever the fuck you want to think. We're all equal. Right. And every time you act racist, you're knocking it down a notch for your own race. Preach. It's ridiculous. Like, what if you were born someone different? Or one of the ones that my mom used to get me with, if someone is making fun of someone's disability... Who's to say you're not going to get in a wreck and get the same fucking disability? You're exactly right. So put yourself in that person's shoes. Right. You need to stop the bullshit. Stop saying that you're better because your skin color is different. Stop saying that they're worse because their skin color is different. I don't care if you're black or Mexican or whoever. Japanese. We've had problems with Japanese not feeling welcome in America. Mm-hmm. And Chinese I, with COVID. Yes. I... I am all for everyone coming to America and being free. Because let me tell you, I've I've seen some stuff about North Korea. Man. Right. Man. That shit scares me. And that's that's happening today. Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. It's like a fucking third world third world country over there. Yeah. So I am all for people being able to have a better life. We don't have to own the entire land and it be exactly how we want it. Just leave people alone. Right. They can all coexist. 
It's not a pissing contest and, you know, you don't have to try to say, you know, like you said, who's superior and who's inferior. No, like we're all, we all start out equal. It's what you do that makes you better or worse. And thinking you're better is not going to make you better. Exactly. But that's my rant. (laughs) Your soapbox. Well, thank you for attending uh, Shelby's TED Talk. (laughs) I I hope you enjoyed my short four-part history of black history. Short. Short. Yeah. It actually is compared to all the stories that I wanted to put in there. But like I said, that would be a very, very long podcast. So if you have any questions or you have anything you want more to research on, hit me up. I'll give you some stuff. We are actually going to be closing out today with a reading of a list of different names of different martyrs and heroes white and black, whoever has been a part of civil rights, being all the way back from the 1500s to today. And wasn't you talking about the, the that poem that you had? Wasn't you going to play oh, that? Oh, the, the Ter- Mother Teresa. Yeah, you was going to play that as well. Yeah, I will read that as well, and I will throw it in there to always do what you're supposed to do. So, I hope you enjoy it. So this is by Mother Teresa. People are often unreasonable and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people may accuse you of ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are honest, people may cheat you. Be honest anyway. If you find happiness, people may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today may be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have, and it may never be enough. Give your best anyway. For you see, in the end, it's between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. And I know we have some people out there that don't believe in God, and if you want to dismiss that entire thing because of that, listen to it again and change it. It's between you and yourself. However you want to see it, all of this stuff, you need to be yourself anyway. You need to be kind, forgive people, be honest, be happy, do good, and always give your best. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. We want freedom by any means necessary. We we want justice by any means necessary. We want equality by any means necessary. We don't feel that in 1964, living in a country that is supposedly based upon freedom and supposedly the leader of the free world, we don't think that we should have to sit around and wait for some segregationist congressmen and senators 
and a president from Texas in Washington, D.C. to make up their mind, to make up their mind that our people are due now some degree of civil rights. No, we want it now or we don't think anybody should have it. Uh, I tried to have as little anger as possible. I tried to use it to tr help people who were suffering and many who were discouraged and did not have the courage to try to take a stand for themselves. Do you feel, Rosa, that this movement has been a success? It has uh, made, we have made uh, many improvements from way back there when we had legally enforced racial segregation. But we still have many challenges to face and we have many uh, problems to solve. Do you have faith? Yes, I still have faith that, that it is possible. Together as salt and pepper, just as you should be, just as I've always wanted you to be, and peoples of the world have always wanted you to be. You are a united people at last, because without unity, there cannot be any victory. I'm glad, I'm glad that in my homeland, in my homeland where I was born and love and respect, I'm glad to see this day come to pass. This day because you are on the eve of complete victory. Tomorrow, time will do the rest. I want you to know also how proud I am to be here today and after so many long years of struggle, fighting here and elsewhere for your rights, our rights, the rights of humanity, the rights of man. Reverend George Lee, Lamar Smith, Emmett Till, John Earl Reese, Willie Edwards Jr., Mac Charles Parker, Herbert Lee, Corporal Roman Duxworth Jr., Paul Gihard, William Lewis Moore, Medgar Evers, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, Cynthia Wesley, Virgil Lamar Ware, Lewis Allen, Johnny Mae Chapel, Reverend Bruce Clunder, Henry Hezekiah D., Charles Eddie Moore, James Earl Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Henry Schwerner, Lieutenant Colonel Lemuel Penn, Jimmy Lee Jackson, Reverend James Reeb, Viola Greg Lazo, O'Neill Moore, Willie Brewster, Jonathan Myrick Daniels, Samuel Lamont Young Jr. Vernon Fernandan Dahmer, Ben Chester White, Clarence Triggs, Wallace Jackson, Benjamin Brown, Samuel Hammond Jr., Delano Middleton, Henry Smith, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Andrew Goodman, Malcolm X, Maya Angelou, John Lewis, Harriet Tubman, Rita Bender, 
Abner Luima, Ahmed Aubrey, Akay Gurley, Alton Sterling, Amado Diallo, Antoine Rose Jr., Betty Jones, Botham Jean, Brianna Taylor, Clementa Pickney, Derek Scott, Dominique Fells, Eric Garner, Eugene Williams, Freddie Gray, Fred Hampton, George Floyd, George Stenny, Haywood Patterson, Jamar Clark, James Bird Jr., John Crawford III, Jordan Davis, Jordan Edwards, Kaya Roll, Khalif Browder, Kendrick Johnson, Corey Wise, Corin Gaines, Laquan McDonald, Lavina Johnson, Manuel Ellis, Mario Woods, Michael Brown, Michael Sabby, Natasha McKinney, Naya Wilson, Nina Pop, Oscar Grant, Pearlie Golden, Philando Castile, Prince C. Jones Jr., Ramona Africa, Russie Taylor, Rakia Boyd, Renisha McBride, Rodney King, Shalisha Johnson, Samuel DeBose, Sandra Bland, Sean Bell, Stephen Clark, Tamir Rice, Tarika Wilson, Terrence Crutcher, Thomas Shipp, Tony McDade, Trayvon Martin, Walter Scott, Yvette Smith. And this is not all of them. This is just a small portion.